0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles, grab them or grab one from the pew in front of you or pull it up on your electronic device. What? Okay? And turn to Galatians chapter 2. This front row is going to be trouble today. It's going to be trouble. I know. And Ben. All right, Galatians chapter 2, and we'll look at the first 10 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, The very thing I also was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we return to the book of Galatians, the, the Magna Carta, as it's known, of Christian freedom. In the first chapter, the Apostle Paul began working on the Galatians and Uh, in subtle ways beginning to refute the errors that had crept into that church through the Judaizers. And at the end of the chapter, what we went through last time was Paul defending his apostolic credentials. That continues into this chapter in the beginning of chapter 2 and uh, we get more information along those lines. The Apostle Paul feels compelled because of the opponents of the gospel that he has to defend his authority. He has to defend his apostleship. And, but that's not his preeminent concern. His, his most prominent concern is what he says in verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. That's what the apostle Paul cares about the truth of the gospel. And the false gospel that's coming in is not another gospel, it's heresy. That, and, and heresy is that which you believe in believing it would condemn you. Right? There is no salvation for the heretic. A heretic has repudiated the faith. And even though they may call themselves Christians, these Judaizers, they are preaching heresy and so Paul does not want the church in Galatia to go after them and his his first concern is that the truth of the gospel the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ uh, go out among them so a lot is at stake right souls are at stake in this This is not just his reputation. This is not uh, the continuing existence of a local body. Uh, Souls, souls who, if they go after the Judaizers and follow their doctrine, will be condemned. But if they follow the Apostle Paul and the message of grace in Christ, well, they will be saved. And so a lot is at stake. Uh, this is no joke for the Apostle Paul. That's why he comes into this book um, breathing fire, right? And v- rebuking strongly, particularly those opponents of the gospel, the Judaizers. The Judaizers want to just add something to the gospel. They just want to add some works, not particularly difficult works, um, circumcision I don't know where you put that on the difficulty scale but when you're eight days old not a big concern right and they want to add cleanliness laws from the Old Testament they want to add food laws they want to go back to the sacrificial system they want to work some of that into the gospel and um, And so, on the side of theology, they're claiming that the Apostle Paul is not being faithful to Moses. He's not being faithful to the Old Testament. He's abandoned half of Scripture. You can imagine them saying things like that. Um, And they want to retain the ceremonial laws, the cleanliness laws, the food laws, the table laws, the sacrificial laws, and particularly circumcision. They want a circumcised and a baptized church. Both of those things. On the side of personality, likely those Judaizers are claiming the Apostle Paul is not really an apostle. He's not like the other guys, right? He's not like James and John and Cephas and the guys in Jerusalem. He's been off in the sticks preaching this gospel of free grace and he's not really a full apostle like the others and so that's why the apostle paul is now coming in and saying hang on a second and so how did he defend himself last time do you remember in the first chapter how does he defend himself it's only been a week yeah, he was asked by God to do it. His, his authority to preach the gospel didn't come because he went to seminary with the, the apostles in their school. It was a better school than that. right? It was the Lord Jesus Christ came to him and gave him this message by way of revelation. He met Jesus Christ. He met the one true living God. And, and then he was, um, and so he received the commission right there. What more does he need uh, than that? Um, <clears throat> he received his gospel by revelation, not from man, not even from the other apostles. He makes that point. And so he establishes in chapter 1 his authority away from the apostles. He, he establishes authority disconnected from the apostles. And the only way you have authority disconnected from the leaders of the church would be if the Lord Jesus Christ comes to you directly and doesn't use means, but comes to you directly. Now, in chapter 2, he argues that the other apostles were in agreement with him when it came to the faith of the Gentiles as it relates to the ceremonial law. That's what he runs by the apostles. But notice, notice um, how many years it is. He spent 14 years ministering the gospel without much knowledge or interaction with the apostles. 14 years. That's a long time, isn't it? 14 years. Uh, I can't remember 14 years ago anymore <laughs> a few years before we moved here and so he he did that ministering and that's what it says in verse one then after an interval of 14 years where he's preaching up in the the, the regions of syria and cilicia, cilicia still unknown to the churches in judea he then decides after those 14 years okay it's time to go to jerusalem and he goes to jerusalem Now, why does he go to Jerusalem? Does he go to Jerusalem because he he thinks, well, I need, again, the stamp of approval of the apostles? No, he goes to Jerusalem because he receives a revelation that he should go to Jerusalem. Again, by direct revelation, God tells him, go to Jerusalem. And so he's like, yes, sir, on my way. And so look at verse 2, it was because of a revelation that I went up. We don't read about that revelation anywhere else, that he should go up to Jerusalem. He was not summoned there by the apostles. He was not looking for the apostles' favor, but he was summoned there by God. Now what did he do there? He told them what he was teaching. And again, we sort of read this passage and we think the Apostle Paul is giving them what he taught so that they might approve it, seeking seeking approval. Um, It may not be that he was seeking their approval. What it seems he was doing was urging them rather to accept Gentile converts. He presented his gospel, which he had been giving to the Gentiles, and they're like, yeah, we agree with that. Go, therefore, to the Gentiles. So he's not seeking approval for his, he's, he's, he's in a sense convincing them that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? He, he's convincing them that we are all saved by grace through faith, right? And so that's what he submits to them, and they find uh, no objection to it. In fact, they agree with him. He, the Apostle Paul, And the apostles in Jerusalem didn't want to see the church split between Jew and Gentile. They did not want to see that split happen. But you can imagine how intense that would have been. For Jews who were so proud of their temple, so proud of their ceremonies, so proud of them being the nation of all nations that had been drawn out for holiness. To be a blessing to the other nations. How deeply that pride would have set in them. And for them to give up. Even in Jesus Christ. The Messiah. The Son of God. Even to give up those shadows. Those things they love to do. The Passover. Right? To give up the sacrifices. To give up the. 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 the, uh, The sacraments of the Old Testament. The circumcision. And the Lord's and the uh, Passover and so this is this is intense this is early on in uh, the work of the church and that was a split that that could easily have developed in the church Um, so the Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem because he was sure of the content of the gospel Um, he had because he had received it directly from Jesus. But he was concerned that the Judaizers would render that calling that he had to the Gentiles superfluous by making this division so strict. You know, let's have a Jewish church, let's have a Gentile church, and certainly the Jewish church will be the more, you know, the, the better, more noble more old, more connected, more historical church. And so he is very concerned about this. And he's concerned about this because there's one gospel. There's only one gospel. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how the Old Testament saints were saved. Don't believe the dispensationalists that have told you otherwise. Right? They were saved by looking forward to the Messiah and they him, anticipating him. Faithful Israelites in the Old Testament looked at the animal sacrifices and looked forward to the one final sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And they put their faith in the Messiah. We have a much more privileged and clear position this side of the cross. We look back, we've seen it's all happened. Been written about in the New Testament. We have much more uh, revelation from God. And so we look back, but saved in the exact same way as Abraham by faith. Right? And so if you just weasel in one little work, grace plus works, like the Judaizers are saying, you've got it wrong and souls will be condemned. You will, you will, if you teach that kind of gospel, you will be leading people astray. Verse 3, Titus is a test case. Titus was a Greek. Titus was a Gentile. And so Titus is there in Jerusalem with him, along with Barnabas. Barnabas is frequent companion um, in Jerusalem. Uh, in his missionary journeys, and so Titus is there, he's Greek, and um, he's a test case. No one believed that that Gentile needed to be circumcised. They're in Jerusalem, they're with the powers that be, and none of them believed that he needed to be circumcised, okay? And so, circumcision, the keeping of the ceremonial law, was not necessary for justification, Faith alone in Christ alone is all that was necessary. No law-keeping will justify a man. And so Titus was was not compelled um, to be circumcised. Right? Test case. Verse 4. Those who were arguing for circumcision were... False brethren, he calls them. False brethren. False because they don't have the gospel. Brethren because they claim Jesus Christ as their own. You know, these false brethren are not denying that Christ has significance. They're not denying that he's uh, the Messiah. They're not denying any of that. They just want circumcision plus Jesus. Okay? Okay? They want the shadows along with the substance. They don't want to give those up. And so these false brethren um, snuck in. Look at the language here. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. Quite, Quite a lot of words there, right? Secretly brought in sneaking out, spying out their liberty in order to bring them into bondage. Sneaky, slimy, you know, uh, hidden in their church, leaven within the church. It's very sneaky, coming in to uh, gaze at their liberty that they have in Christ. And the liberty he's speaking about here is the liberty not to be justified by the law or the ceremonial law. That's the liberty they have, and and they go in there, and they're disgusted by it. They're disgusted by it. They can't believe that, that Paul, this Pharisee, would give up all those things that were precious even to him. And so they sneak in to see what kind of liberty these brothers had, And they objected to such liberty because they were proud Jews who would not let go of their ancestral traditions. They loved their traditions. They loved their traditions. And that's a constant temptation for every church, even this side of the cross, and the clear dispensing of the gospel of grace, right? We love our traditions. We will give up the gospel to keep our traditions. Uh, I think so many people today, because we're sort of a, we have short spans of attention and we have no uh, grounding, we float about, people do long for ancient traditions, right? Right? You've heard a lot of of reformed Christians becoming Eastern Orthodox. Well, the reason they become Eastern Orthodox is because they're wowed by aesthetics and the the ancient history and the icons and the kind of worship and the buildings and the space and, and everything but the gospel of free grace, right? So they give up doctrine in order to have tradition, I mean, this is, this is a temptation that, that all of us face. Um, you know, we, we truly would like to have a building we can boast in rather than boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. It would satisfy us to say, you know, come see our stained glass windows and pillars and stone and high ceilings. It's all here. It's just... Diminished a little bit, <laughs> but that's a temptation. It's a temptation if you ever studied music or studied art to want to uh, to want to have that aesthetic experience be your gospel, right? Any of you ever tempted by that? Tempted by the smells and the bells? Tempted by the the what you're surrounded with? And losing sight of the simplicity of the gospel, the gospel message, the message which is saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Right? Not that God doesn't tell us how to worship, not that he doesn't define for us what we are to do, not that there isn't a, you know, it, it's wrong to have church buildings, none of that. But we, some of us, for a, a pot of stew would sell our um, theology for uh, certain traditions. And that ought not to be, because ancestral traditions will not save you. They will not. And so they, these Judaizers wanted to bring them into bondage, So that their justification depended on them going after these works, these traditions, these Jewish traditions, ancestral traditions. That the Apostle Paul calls bondage. You're bound to it. It is a slavery to a cruel master because that that master will not save you but will condemn you. Unlike being a slave to God, a slave to Jesus Christ—that's a good slavery. That's the slavery you want because He's the perfect Master, and He has your freedom in Him, in mind. So they were free. Um, these the the members of the Galatian church were free by faith in Jesus Christ. And to follow the Judaizers would have brought them into bondage. Now we get it. We get that, right, when it comes to the ceremonial law. But what about the moral law? How do we compute the moral law in this whole equation? And by moral law, what do I mean? The Ten Commandments. Right? The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that we have in the Old Testament, that's the, that's the law of God, the moral law. Is that temporary? Is the moral law temporary? No. It's not temporary. Is it just for Christians? No. It's for all people through all time. Right? That moral law. And so... so if we're looking at the book of Galatians, is he just dealing with the ceremonial law? Certainly he is dealing with the ceremonial law because he keeps mentioning circumcision. Right? He keeps coming back to circumcision. That was definitely part of the the Jewish ceremonial cleanliness laws, right? But what about the moral law? Um, We rightly say the moral law is still in effect, and so it's necessary to be kept. You must keep the moral law. Right? right? Yes. Amen. Yes. God didn't tell you to have no other gods so that you would go and have another God. Right? God didn't, God, you know, didn't tell you to not commit adultery so that you'd go and commit adultery. He expects his people to be holy as he is holy. Right? And so that moral law is still necessary but is the keeping of the moral law meritorious? So it's not meritorious. Right? <laughs> By the keeping of the law shall no man be justified. Right? We're talk, the, the main topic of the book of Galatians is justification. How can I be right before a holy God? Okay? And so the works of the law that he talks about in Galatians, yes, definitely ceremonial. But the moral law never justified any man. Never. Right? And so It is necessary that the law be kept, the moral law, but don't make the mistake of thinking that the moral law is meritorious. That you are justified because you keep the law. No. No a thousand times. No, 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 no. You are justified purely by faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from the works of the law. Okay? It's stupendously gracious, isn't it? It's incredibly gracious. It's unbelievably gracious of God to justify on the basis of faith, but God so loves his son that those who put their faith in him will be saved. Anything, add anything to salvation by faith alone, and what is the result? Justification by your meritorious performance. Justification through what you do. Justification by how well you keep the law. Justification by saying a thousand Hail Marys. Justification by your own merit and not the cosmic, complete, rich, deep, wide merit of the Lamb of God who was slain. Calvin said, to keep the ceremonies as if we are living under the law is to detract from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as it is written, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I mean, the Apostle John draws a distinction between Moses and Jesus. Right? So go there, add anything to your salvation. Think that you, you gain the favor of God by what you do or don't do and you will never have assurance of your salvation you will never think you're saved because guess what you do every day break god's law you do it a thousand times a day at least right just consider your thoughts and so justification. When it comes to justification, when it comes to, and a knowledge of justification, which I think that's a good definition of assurance, knowing your justification, right? If, If your justification is based upon how you're performing, get ready for the roller coaster ride and get ready to be lying to yourself constantly about how good you've done that day. We overestimate our merit. All the time. Oh, I haven't looked at pornography today. I'm justified. I love Jesus. Are you kidding me? Is that all it takes? Yeah, that's the sort of trick we play in our head when we, just, when we're, when we base our justification on our meritorious works. I didn't raise my voice to my children today. I'm justified. I enjoy my salvation. No, Jesus died and shed his blood and went in the tomb and three days later he rose from the dead, and you're justified because you believe that. That is incredibly important. And I know I sound antinomian, but you can't preach the justification by of in free grace and not sound like that. That's what it sounds like. Now I can slap us all with a heavy dose of sanctification in which we're going to approach the law in a very different manner. Right? Certainly not as merit, but living a life that's a a fragrant aroma to God and pursuing our holiness, we must um, strive to keep the, the law. But it's not part of our justification. And so, we got to avoid two pits, right? we got to avoid antinomianism, and we have to avoid works-based justification. Those are two heretical pits that we don't want to fall in. We want to take the middle path down those. Did you have something? Well, I was thinking, one way to help um not become antinomian when you're, when you're contemplating the gospel of grace is to remember that the law is still necessary. Jesus kept it perfectly. Yes. Which was why he was able to be a perfect sacrifice. Right. The, the, he was not tainted in any way with sin to to follow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay, any other thoughts or comments at that point that that is the the meat of this book, yeah. Was that the time when he kind of went eye to eye with Peter about this eating proper food? Or was that at another time when he was there? That's another time. that's, that's, That's verse 11. That's the next thing we get to. And Peter comes to Antioch. And so Peter comes to Paul's turf and there messes things up. Right? Yeah. Um, I think this precedes that. Yeah. I think this actually precedes this. Because that's not... He says he meets with them privately. Right? And so... Um, I, in verse 2, I did so in private. And so I think this precedes the Jerusalem Council where everything is codified. Okay? All right, verse 5... I love this verse, Paul, Paul is, in writing to Galatians, is, is, uh, you, can, you can see he's getting charged up, and he, he says of these Judaizers, but we did not yield to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Um, Calvin says, we have seen that Paul was fighting an important battle of his day. Today, Calvin, speaking of the Reformation, we battle over the same issues and we must not remain silent. To do so would be to betray both God and man. We have to struggle constantly against such hellish tyranny and all the vanities, lies, and delusions of Satan. He is seeking either to destroy the gospel altogether or at the very least to to so distort it That we no longer know what is and what is not pure truth. We ought always to keep this in mind. Hence, when Paul says that he would not give way to such people, not even for a moment, this confirms to us all the more the very thing that I explained a short while ago. Peace and friendship, listen to this, peace and friendship amongst men is a wonderful thing. This is the truth, and we ought to pursue these things with all our strength. At the same time, however, God's truth ought to be so precious to us that even if we had to set the whole world on fire in order to promote it, we would be only too willing to do so. Yes, as far as we can, we are to seek peace. If only we ourselves and our possessions are at stake, If only my life and my possessions are at stake, let us endeavor to be at peace with our enemies and to tolerate them, (laughs) seeking to win them by our patience. This is what pursuing peace entails. However, if God's truth is being ignored or misused, this no longer applies. This kind of peace that men seek will always be under God's curse if he is not acknowledged or praised as he deserves. Or if his word is not kept in all its purity, for that ought to be the knot of our bond. Right? I mean, it's it's fascinating how those reformers who actually were undergoing severe persecution, right? Reformers got burned at the stake for holding to the reformed faith, for denying transubstantiation, right? All hosts of of doctrines concocted out of thin air that they resisted. And yet, here's their attitude. Look, if it's my possessions and my life at stake, then let's be patient. But if it's the truth of God that's at stake, the rules have changed. I mean, think about that. Think about that. We, we would never make a statement like that in a thousand years. To give up life and possessions for the sake of doctrinal truth? We'd be more likely to say, I, I don't know if I can live by that, but I certainly don't want to die. And this was their attitude. Like death, possessions, psh, They can take those all day long, you know, um, not going to worry about that. But if they're distorting the gospel, we're going to go at them with every bit of our power. All of our guns are going to be trained on them because what they're doing is sending other people's souls to hell by the doctrine that they teach. And so he's like, that's when, that's when it's time to rise up and oppose tyranny not even when they're killing you and taking away your possessions. Hebrews talks about the people of God gladly surrendering their possessions because they had a a future, they had a better place, right? Gladly giving up their possessions. But boy, it doesn't play well in Peoria today. Not in our our great... defy tyrants moment today. Care very little about doctrine. Care very much about our people and possessions and ourselves. Right? And, and the, Calvin is careful to always make that distinction. Look, they can take our lives, they can take our possessions, but what we despise about the Roman Catholic faith is that they're distorting the gospel and sending multitudes of people to hell that ought to be opposed. There is no time for friendship when it comes to bad doctrine. When Revoice was ravaging, as it still is, the Presbyterian Church in America, we made a decision to leave the Presbyterian Church in America because of that false gospel. And yet there's a whole host of conservatives that, you know, and I myself was urged by the most conservative of the conservatives that it wasn't time to leave, and leaving was forsaking the battle. And, and I just, and I said, no, this is, a, this is a false gospel arising from the very denominational seminary that has trained the pastors, the rot is so deep, and you think it's fine to be collegial with people who are preaching a false gospel. This is doctrinal, okay? This is doctrinal. Yes, it'd be nice to be able to hobnob with with tall steeple pastors. But it was about doctrine. You know, it was about doctrine and separating from that and continuing to oppose that doctrine, right? But, it, but it, honestly, it was, the, it was the, the softness of the men opposing doctrinal heresy that motivated us to say, okay, if we can't trust the conservatives, then who can we trust, right? So we separated from them and continued then to point out the errors of revoice without, um, without being in the midst of them and owning their doctrine, right? Um, you know, in the, at the height of it, the conservatives and the liberals of the PCA got together and declared a truce. They said these are just minor disagreements over various tiny interpretations of the Westminster standards. Okay, Jesus plus effeminacy. Jesus plus no doctrine of sanctification. It's not minor differences. All right. Anyway, come back. Come back. Here we are. Verse 6. Verse 6, But from those who are of high reputation... He's speaking of the apostles, John, Peter, you know, James. Those were of high reputation. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. That's the Apostle Paul being the Apostle Paul, right? He is just not wrapped up in people's positions and personalities, right? Eh, he He doesn't see men that way. Right, but what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. And so, um, one commentary said Paul's words are neither a denial of nor a mark of disrespect for their apostolic authority. He accepts their office as apostles. He's not overawed by their persons, as if it was being inflated by the, as it was being inflated by the Judaizers. You know, the Judaizers were likely saying, man, our doctrine comes from the guys right up in Jerusalem. The big guys, you know, those men of high reputation, the pillars of the church. That's where our doctrine comes from. Don't listen to this this country bumpkin who's been out in the sticks for the last 14 years. Don't listen to him. And so he's... and, And so... Paul is saying, look, what they are makes no difference to me, but notice what he says, they contributed nothing to me. In other words, they didn't correct me. Everything, we agreed on everything. We were of one mind. That's what he's saying there. We are of one mind. There was no disagreement. We're on the same page, Judaizers. Paul, Peter, same page. No difference. Okay? Okay? They contributed nothing to me. In other words, his gospel was complete. There was nothing the Jerusalem men did to tweak what he taught. All were in agreement. And then verse 7 through 10, the Jerusalem men saw two things. They learned two things about Paul. One, that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter to the, to the Jews. Same gospel, two missions. One goes out to the Jews, one goes to the Gentiles. And that too, that grace had been given to Paul to go on this mission to the Gentiles. In other words, we have an apostle to the Gentiles. He's been called for this purpose, we affirm. All confirmed with a handshake, the right hand of fellowship. You know, you think it's weird that after ordinations, the call of the book of church order is that all officers greet the new ordinand with the right hand of fellowship. Well, it's right here in Scripture. That's why it's done. So all confirmed with the right hand of fellowship, James, Cephas, John, apostles. What did they ask the Apostle Paul to do? Just one simple thing. We're poor. We need help. Can you raise money among the Gentiles and bring it back to Jerusalem for the relief of the saints? And he's like, I want to do that anyway. This is great. I will. You know? and uh, and he does that, so again, we see we're beginning to see the picture now he's going to get into after we go through Peter next time. now Peter comes to Antioch and sins. he gets confused, right even Peter, right even Peter, even that the, the The best elder you have on an elder board will at times get confused. Senior pastor will just get confused at points, right? And sin, sin in the pulpit even, right? Peter, the apostle, we're going to see his sin next time. But do you see why this book was so important to Luther and Calvin and so many others during the early Reformation? It's just pounding on the exact issue that needed to be preached during that time to oppose this whole new scheme that had been concocted by an apostate church. Works plus. Semi-Pelagian. Works plus. And so, oh man, I wanted to read you some Calvin and... One, one final thought on the Roman Catholic Church. Of the Roman Catholic Church, Calvin says they are worse than the Judaizers of Paul's time. Because at least the Judaizers were returning to the tradition of the Old Testament. But the Roman Catholic Church makes up new traditions out of thin air. If God desired his own ceremonies to be abolished, how can men press forward and introduce their own as if they would have us believe that God has not acted wisely? Right, So he says it's even worse today than it was with Paul in, in Galatia because these guys are just, it's not returning to the Old Testament, it's just like making up new stuff from non-inspired texts and, and from the traditions of men. Terrible. Terrible. All right, got to stop. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Your word correcting us, comforting us, teaching us, rebuking us. Father, showing us who you are. Give us, Father, a thorough understanding of it. And whatever errors we have in our heads because we've been mistaught, Father, would you reveal those things through your word. And may we make progress in the faith. Pray that the word of God would dwell richly in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.